Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. Today, we have with us Dr. Imai and Dr. Yusik to talk about their new book, Creativity in Tokyo, Revitalizing a Mature City, recently published by Pelgrave Macmillan. Um, Dr. Imai is currently an associate professor at Senshi University in Japan. She researches and teaches about vernacular landscapes, cultural identities, and urban practices in modern Asia. Dr. Yusik is currently an associate professor at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia. His research covers urban sociology, cultural geography, as well as social ecology. In this book, Creativity in Tokyo, the authors explore the changing context of creativity of Tokyo in an age of globalization. More specifically, through a series of interviews with creative actors in local neighborhoods, Dr. Imai and Dr. Yusik discuss the roles of soft, or they call social factors, in urban creativity. Welcome, Dr. Imai and Dr. Yusik. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before we start talking about the book, I'd like to just learn more about you as a person. Could you, um, I guess the both of you, could you tell us more about how you started your journey as a scholar in urban sociology and cultural identities? And um, I guess in the case of Dr. Imai, why did you choose Japan to uh, do your researches on? Um I might go have to uh, have to go back some years, but I was uh, in Oxford uh, writing my master thesis about uh, gap spaces and um, you know spaces and anyway in Tokyo, and I realized during some fieldwork there that there is much more to do about you know that spaces people call nichi no sekatsu are really ordinary spaces. So I went on to uh, prepare a PhD. Uh, fieldwork and then, of course, PhD thesis at the University uh, Metropolitan uh, Manchester University. And uh, during that time, I often came to Tokyo before really living also in Tokyo. And uh, yeah, I just stayed on and stayed in Japan, being still fascinated by that gap spaces. So that is actually how I, I think I came to Japanese studies, also studying more about Japanese urban landscape, and then, of course, social problems that was added by then. Yeah, Thank you, was... that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Dr. Yusik? What about uh, social ecology and um, cultural geography that interests you so much to pursue a career in this? Yes, uh, I had quite a different trait, uh, probably, from my uh, colleague. Well, my history with Japan probably started when I was already quite young i would say i got this how to say bug for uh, for japan already in the young age uh, to tell you the truth i was a passionate for anime and for uh, for uh, japanese uh, uh, mangas uh, in my in my early days so this is how it all started and then it just transcribed through my uh, study years 
until I finally got uh, the uh, first scholarship for Japan. And uh, this is where all the story with the research started and it just grew with the years uh, gradually until uh, we came to this part uh, when I started actively engaging in the research in Japan. So I can say that it started uh, uh, gradually from the from the very beginning and uh, came up to the to the today's result. I would say this would be somehow, let's say, uh, a quick overlook of my uh, uh, relation with uh, Japan and Japanese studies. That's wonderful, actually. Um, I would uh, be very much embarrassed to admit that I also started my interest in Japan from anime and manga. And um, after several years of watching those early anime, I find myself in a graduate program in Japanese studies. I guess that's something we all share in common. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Now, looking back at your journey, are there any memorable moments or people that influenced your work or your life or your your study, your choice of career? Um, actually, I I mean, you know, being um, seeing Japan as a country which is quite different where we are both from in Europe. Um, I first came to Japan, I think, 2003, and I was uh, at that time studying Japanese language in the Netherlands I lived, and I moved to Kyoto for three months for a language program, and the house I lived in belongs to Venezia um, Smith, which is a very famous figure in Japan, often on NHK, and uh, the friend who connected us, uh, her husband is a monk, so my very first encounter with Japan was actually an Obon ceremony uh, led by her husband. Um, you know, Hiesan is a very famous, um, you know, religion or you know, uh, uh, you know, subdivision of you know Buddhism, and that was very impressive because he couldn't speak any English and I couldn't speak at that time very much Japanese. So. That was a summer which um, changed me, and I really wished to come back to do research in um, Kyoto, which I then did two years later with a scholarship. So I guess uh, that was not Tokyo, that was actually, you know, Kansai and Kyoto. And yeah, this deep, um, how say, um, combination of tradition and modernity. Cool. And what about you, Dr. Yusek? Yeah, in my case, I would say that the trigger factor in this story was uh, Professor Ritsuko. Ozaki from uh, Imperial College in London. And she, in fact, uh, put me, uh, let's say, used also her network to put me in the connection with other people in Japan, with other professors in Japan. And I would say that she triggered, in fact, uh, this uh, chain uh, chain reactions in my uh, liaison with, uh, with Japan. So this is uh, how it all started. So if somebody... If I could say that somebody really influenced uh, uh, my uh, starting years in, in Japan, I would uh, give the credits to her. And so this would be the, the, a good starting point, I would say. And then Professor Kazushi Tamano from the Tokyo Metropolitan University. So these two persons really, let's say, uh, put me on the, in a good position to start my research, to start... Uh, uh, exploring, researching uh, in, in terms of urban sociology in Japan. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, now let's turn to the book. 
I really enjoyed reading your book and especially the pictures you included in the book. They are amazing as they capture scenery that I think many people tend to pay very little attention to because they're just so everyday and so common seemingly. Um, I'm curious how you started this project. How did you first um, start paying attention to Tokyo's um, creative ecosystem or notice the significance of these creative elements? Um, I guess maybe we should go back some years. Um, I think um, that was 2014 where we met in person. I mean, we haven't been in contact before, so we basically met through some um, you know common connections. Uh, there was the year when the Rio de Janeiro Olympics happened, and there, of course, were also events at the embassy in uh, Tokyo, the Brazilian embassy in Tokyo. And I think, uh, if I can remember correctly, uh, Dr. Osik was at the scholarship, anyway, at the exchange, and uh, we sat in a cafe and basically discussed that we have very much in common, and uh, it would be great to do something together. Um, either a paper or a book. At that time, um, we really thought that would be worthwhile, and uh, after I think uh, Dr. Osik left Tokyo, uh, we basically kept on using Skype and other methods to talk to each other and exchange our ideas, write an abstract um, with some very important research questions, conduct some research, answer some of the main questions, uh, like how do we define creativity and what is missing? And I think it took quite a while to find this kind of common, you know, common approach and thing. But I think that was, um, you know, maybe more in his area from the very beginning, but absolutely in my interest to find out more about these creative uh, factors and social factors in Tokyo. Yeah, and um, if if I may just add uh, to the to what uh, Heide already uh, explained. Uh, maybe, uh, and what also you you already uh, mentioned uh, before that that some things that we are studying maybe seem uh, common for uh, for a Japanese eye, but it's exactly I think this position of uh, we are in fact, if I may say so, we are gaijins in in terms of uh, we are outsiders in terms of uh, uh, let's say uh, that, that we are not. Uh, Japanese citizens and so on, but it's just exactly this outsideness that also provided a different angle of view, and this is what in fact uh, triggered maybe our interest. Because what we saw uh, in the case of Tokyo is that although Tokyo is so unique, and although Japan in general is so unique, it is so well globalizing. It is so well using all kinds of uh, global elements and integrating them in, into their, uh, uh, let's say, ecosystem and creative ecosystem. That this ecosystem is gaining qualities of both global worlds and unique local worlds. And this is what triggered our interest in this modification, transformations that are going on in, in Japan and that are really unique and. Being an outsider in this regard, it's not to be considered that uh, you have, um, uh, let's say, uh, a, a worse angle of view or that you have uh, a diminished uh, point of start. It's quite the op opposite. It can also mean that you have 
uh, a different, a privileged view because you can add, you can decipher some global elements that are being integrated benevolently or imbenevolently into the, let's say, into the structure of Tokyo, into the structure of the creative ecosystem of Tokyo. So it's exactly our, this, how to say, um, standing of between the, standing on the border between two worlds that enabled us to see the story of uh, uh, Tokyo creativity in a little bit special way. Indeed, I completely agree. Um, and actually, in the beginning of your book, in the in the very um, first page of the introduction part, you kind of mentioned this new perspective from a, a guidance um, angle. I mean, I'm a I'm a guiding myself in, in Japanese studies, but it kind of stood out to me that um, you had to almost justify for your perspective in this study in the in the introduction part. Just out of curiosity, I I'm wondering if um, you had to explain this part because. You met any sort of difficulty or disagreement in your standpoints in doing this study, because um, to to give this question more um, context, my own studies are in uh, pre-modern history, pre-modern Japanese history, and I very seldom see authors in my discipline or in my field uh, explain their their special perspective in the matters that they. Research. So, have you ever, in your um, years of researching in Japan, um, encountered any of questioning or doubt from other people about your own perspectives on Japan? Go ahead. Go ahead, Heidi. Um, doesn't I mean this is very you know this is a you know broad question or let's say there could be several things i could which come to mind but i had often people commenting on how can you live in japan and do research about japan because they think the more you live here the more you uh, let's say glorify it so um being a i think there's this double double kind of layer being a gaijin living outside coming as an academic still you might be not considered to be truly understanding Japan because Nihonjin-ron is kind of, um, we are special, so you can still not get the depths if you, I mean, starting with the language and so on. But I often had this um, kind of, let's say, pre-justice. Um, eventually, you're losing that uh, objectiveness you need to do research in Japan or anyway about Japan, about Tokyo. At least that is what uh, I've, I have feared several times, and I don't think so. I absolutely don't think so. I think even more, it is good like we did it, that we had a good exchange about our perspectives on, on the situations or, you know, about our research. And it, I think it never really mattered whether we are in Japan or outside Japan. Uh, I, I completely uh, agree with what uh, Heidi said. Uh, maybe my experience uh, of uh, this uh, angle of uh, perspective, which is changing uh, with, uh, with, with changes with your uh, embeddedness in, in a specific culture. Uh, I had this experience uh, when I was doing for the first time the interviews in Japan. And, and uh, what I noticed when I was doing these interviews that we, mm, it, that, that 
that this embeddedness in uh, the cultural scene really influences how you value specific things. And when I say value specific things, I really mean this soft and hard factors about which we talk in the in the book. For example, I was doing interviews uh, regarding the Tsukiji uh, fish marketplace during that that period when I was uh, in Japan, and uh, I was. For the first time, in fact, because this was my first encounter with research in Japan, I was uh, a little bit uh, surprised how specific uh, groups uh, of inter- of people that I interviewed, because I interviewed uh, quite a versatile, quite a different groups of uh, of people, um, from academics to uh, um, civil society groups to uh, normal citizens and so so. It really surprised me how specific groups value uh, Tsukiji, uh, fish marketplace, in a really different way than a person which would be embedded in a different uh, type of uh, cultural ecosystem would value. So, uh, and this surprised me a lot. And this sparked my interest in the, let's say, in this division of uh, soft and hard factors when it comes to evaluation of non-monetary values in a specific culture. So um, this, of course, each culture has different angles of how to look at uh, non-monetary values, so these soft factors within a culture. And uh, what surprised me most in the case of Japan is that uh, these soft values uh, are are changing. They're changing, and uh, how are they being transformed? So if I... It's difficult to answer in a simple way, way to your question because I can say that I was my view about specific things were all the time challenged. It was all the time a challenge, and you try and you try when you try to do research, you try to construct out various models, perceptions of thinking, which were of course also changing or during all these times that we were doing the research. But yes, um, this uh, differential specifica between uh, gaijin and uh, um, uh, uh, Japanese perception is tremendously interesting, and how it modifies with the uh, alongside with the duration of uh, uh, alongside uh, the dimension or the variable of time, and this is uh, which is of special in, of which should be of special interest inside uh, of this story, because when we started the book. Um, everybody was looking at creative industries in one sense. And then after uh, the book was finished, we may say that we already noticed some changes being uh, being uh, um, noticed or being uh, or um, that are happening, that are materializing also in the case of uh, Japan. So, uh, yes, I was uh, I can say that uh, our views are have been all the time challenged, but uh, this is exactly uh, what makes a researcher even more attentive and more interested in the uh, thing, I would say. That's that's fascinating. I think a lot of um, learners and lovers of Japanese culture or um, other cultures in general will find inspiration in your perspectives. Um, I'd like to move on and to talk about your choice of Tokyo as the stage of this study. So the subtitle of your book is 
revitalizing a mature city. Um, can you speak more to the nuance of um, Tokyo as a mature city? You mentioned uh, political and economic elements in the book and efforts by the government and so on. Could you elaborate more on that? Um, I guess uh, Matthias might be better in that matter. So. Yes, um, maybe if I start, uh, uh, why maturity? Um, we perceived maturity in, in two ways. Uh, this is why we gave uh, such a subtitle to the book. Because maturity can be on one, from one angle, it can mean rigidness. It, it can mean uh, that something is um, non-movable, that something is uh, um, really hard to uh, make any change. And this can mean maturity, that you're getting older, that you're getting more solidified. On the second, um, from the second angle, from uh, from another perspective, uh, matureness can mean experience, richness, abundance. Um, uh, this this incredible uh, um, uh, accumulation of uh, knowledge of uh, of your uh, uh, impressions, of perceptions, of uh, of it's it's a really a container of of uh, experiences and richnesses that can be used to uh, of course to to um, let's say to amplify uh, the creative capacity of Tokyo. So this is the these are let's say the two uh, elements of maturity or the two dimension of maturity that we try to address, and in fact. In book, we say that we see both of them in Tokyo. So Tokyo is, is in one sense, because it's so colossal, it's the biggest city in the world. It's in one perspective, it's so difficult to move the system. But at the same time, the system has so much richness. And this is why it makes it fascinatingly unique in uh, the world's terms. Uh, Tokyo, Tokyo, it's unique in, in this perspective. And because it's unique, it's also, uh, well, I'm going to use this uh, cliche term uh, uh, that it is a real and uh, a real living lab, if I can, can say so. And I don't want to say it in a pejorative uh, way of thinking, but it's a, it's, a living, it's a living lab of future. And this is why Tokyo is uh, uh, dramatically interesting uh, for the future of the world, because uh, um, the system, if we look, if we look globalization uh, on the on the whole scale, the world is getting more globalized, and it will undoubtedly become even more globalized. And when we come to the end, when there is no space left, we'll have similar um, uh, phenomena which are happening already uh, in Japan and that are already here, and they need to be studied because we'll come to. Uh, um, we'll come to terms with it. Yeah, we'll have to come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, and I believe the, the the Olympics next year that's happening in Tokyo is certainly a very important aspect in the globalization of Tokyo, as well as its uh, significant role in the the global stage. Um, it, it it is. Um, 
like like um i think um you know the maybe just to add two terms which um, come to mind there is that is actually very interesting that um tokyo or you know you know as a mega city or as a big city biggest city in the world is maybe not even so much uh, speaking for the whole of japan but what it has is that you have this uh, hyper modern and hyper local next to each other and there are so many fascinating not just subcultural elements, but, you know, elements which um, you just see if you really emerge yourself in that scene, whether it is Tokyo or Japan as a whole or the Japanese studies as a whole. And if you don't pay attention to that details, then you just overlook it as, I don't know, chaotic, uh, very special, very uh, driven by, let's say, um, Pokemon or others. But it's not, you know, there is always that you know, fine grain, and as we said, um, this micro scale and uh, being constantly going back to that and studying actually what is maturity. And even then, you know, on the top level, they might have realized, you know, global events or mega events might help. But I think on the bottom side, um, whether Tokyo Olympics happened this year or not, or in what kind of scale, I think people already moved on to say, okay, now we had this memorial year also for i think tokyo um 2020 that beforehand tourism was a kind of you know tool for everything but now maturity uh, people realize we have to find other approaches to address it and that is now uh, really in the process so it's very interesting to see what is coming in the next years that is very true i completely agree one thing i loved about tokyo when i was visiting there for a few days was that uh, when you're walking on the streets, take a turn, and you immediately, you're, it's as if you completely go into a different place from, from all the tall skyscrapers. You're suddenly into this quiet alley with sort of old houses. Um, that contrast was one of my favorite things in Tokyo. So I have some follow-up questions here. Um, so early on, you mentioned soft factors, or uh, in the book, you called it social environmental factors. And throughout the entire book, it seems to be one of the core concepts that constitutes this study. Could you give some examples of how these soft factors play into the context of urban creativity and why should we pay so much attention to them? Okay, maybe uh, maybe um, I I can start with uh, the introduction into soft and hard factors uh, uh, of creativity. So mm, the idea was that uh, usually when we talk about creativity in general, we have focused too much on the output, so on the product. So whenever you see people talking on TV or in media about creative industries, they mention or they show just the most blistering, the most uh, impressive outputs of this uh, type of uh, um, industry. But the thing is that this is just at the top of the pyramid. And uh, what uh, you don't see on the TV is that this pyramid you don't see the, 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 let's say, the 99% of this pyramid. So because you see just the product. And the product, to get to the final product, you, there, there had to be a chain of events. And this chain of events includes chains of actors 
which contributed to this end product at the end of the pyramid. And uh, and this uh, and and this is the let's say the main problem of this uh, process of uh, creative industries. Why? Because um, you can you can, for example, uh, start uh, uh, policies. You can, for example, start with very uh, precise uh, uh, political programs how to. Um, work on creative industries or how to work with creativity in specific city. And during these um, processes of, um, let's say, um, of, produ- of, pro- of trying to produce uh, urban creativity, uh, you often, of course, or let's say that uh, political actors often neglect this uh, bottom, to- bottom uh, part of the, this pyramid that I was talking about. So they, they see just the product and they just try to work on the product and just try to come to the end product immediately. So they try to fast forward the process and just produce the best possible outputs of this of this uh, process. So it's uh, uh, let's I would say that it is uh, uh, um, well it is a fast policy. In fact, it is a a fast forward policy that tries to uh, have quick effects. But the the problem is that on the other hand, not a lot of uh, policies think on the think on the long term because uh, uh, because these long term policies would involve, uh, let's say, more let's say a painstaking process which takes a lot of time, a lot of changes in times of political actors and so on, and they and because of this they are unpopular, and uh, this brings let's say specific. Um, uh, uh, disorders, ambiguities into the city spaces. Why? Because, let's say, with this introduction of fast policies, these uh, long-term uh, effects of what these fast policies make on uh, on uh, the creativity, on urban creativity, are forgotten. So, in other words, by implementing uh, quick-term policies, by implementing, uh, by, by trying, by concentrating on the output on the product, we forget about the people which make this product. And not only by people, we mean the very communities, local communities, where everything starts. And these local communities is where these creative actors grow out from. These are the roots of the creativity in each city. So local communities, neighborhoods. And if these neighborhoods, these local communities don't function well, then you can have creativity for a short term, but not for the long term. And this is what we try to uh, uh, put our focus on. M- maybe Heidi can uh, also add to this. Um, Ken, I, I'm, I will just add a bit about, you know, that soft factor, social economic factor, uh, social environmental factor, sorry. Um, because, you know, that creative actors are placed in specific environments and, you know, it is, uh, they are shaped by their environments and they are shaping the their neighborhoods and environments. So I think this correlation that we are not just talking about creative class and middle class and uh, how this is growing and how, of course, this also becomes a tool of urban planners and so on. But um, I think it's much more that kind of dialogue and, and 
you know, having traditional uh, craftsmen or residents living there and artis um, artisan or, you know, artists moving in or being present maybe already or using vacant spaces and then finding a kind of new coexistence. So it is not always, let's say, that top-down perspective which we should look at and say, oh, how can urban planners use it? Because the question is often, um, maybe... Yes, there are famous places like Harajuku or Shimokidazawa where, of course, creative industries play a huge role and are commodified. But even in the smaller senses, very ordinary common spaces uh, and people and, you know, you know, micro cultures uh, have maybe found a symbiosis which is working well and which we should look at, study them and find out how maybe a kind of meso level of talking to um, people what they actually need and how planners can keep such a, let's say, human scale. I think this is very important. Thank you. That is, that is very interesting and I can definitely imagine how this mode of um, that this framework can be applied to many other areas in this world where uh, local creativities are being ignored or being overshined by these so-called uh, modernization. Um, so in the late latter half of the book, you introduced some case studies to demonstrate their uniqueness of creativity could you talk more about these cases as to how they practice creativity and what their significances are in the broader picture of creativity or urban creativity in Tokyo? Maybe, um, you know, I will start here and then Matthias can, of course, um, you know, uh, say something about it. Um, I think um, you very well uh, see that, of course, it starts with kind of framing the case studies. And the case studies are, I don't want to say randomly chosen, but we try to um, include case studies which are not so prominent, which are not so famous, which are, of course, existing and Koenjin, you can say, is well known. So it's a, I don't want to say, um, you know, you know, not a logical consequence, but it is a kind of representing the a diversity of cases. So it starts with um, cases which are, um, I think, classified in the chapter uh, one going local, where you see a uh, Hikifuna and um, Kyojima, which are um, maybe for the people who don't know, are located in the east of Tokyo near the sky tree, near the new sky tree. And actually, it is interesting to see um, that most people maybe know about the sky tree, but not about the surrounding areas. Um, so here you have two neighborhoods which are clearly, I don't want to say overshadowed, but one has tried to implement uh, creative elements he had and also the uniqueness of the area, but developers haven't re really followed that proposal. And uh, we see in more and more uh, the rise and the growing of a very generic, um, I don't want to say bed town, but it looks much like a bed town with Uniqlo's and all the shops which we might know from other stations around Tokyo, other train stations around Tokyo. And just a bit south of it, um, maybe not so much accessible because, you know, there is no major train station um, just uh, in that area. We have a very unique, um, you know, small-scale neighborhood around the Shotengai, which is, of course, Shotengai Shopping Street, which is, uh, you know, of course, also run down because, you know, people get, get older and 
you know, younger people don't really shop there anymore. So in the end, we see vacant spaces being available and used by artists who obviously have been welcomed. Yeah, so there was no, never a, you know, a discussion of fighting over that areas, but actually being happy that people showed some interest. And then we move on a bit into more downtown. I don't want to say downtown, but, you know, the center, uh, central areas around Akihabara. Anyway, the kind of, it's known as the Central East districts, which have already started 20 years ago to realize that these areas are, um, you know, um, having more and more vacant spaces because traditional storage and industries have moved out, have moved online, uh, have disappeared. And here we see a lot of storage housing and, uh, you know, other, let's say, business uh, buildings being empty. And actually, an organization started then, or several organizations started then uh, 15, 20 years ago to realize that we should do something with it. And I think we here have to mention Taitoku, the Taito Ward, as very leading in that organization. They used a school as a new design center and um, the approach was very good. They said you can rent or you can, um, you know, apply for an atelier, uh, you know, kind of studio for three years. You need a business plan. And after three years, you have to move on to try to be independent. And this is working well since so many years that, of course, that it has attracted many people to then stay in the area and other institutions, including, you know, even some public, private and even private institutions. I don't want to say copy that concept, but move on to, you know, have um, add to that scene design centers and, um, you know, other studios and ateliers. So it's a very unique area, which is, I don't want to say highly popular, but um, you see the rise of you know, rent prices and even, you know, artists who settled there might say in the end it is becoming too popular. So um, it is not just West west um, of Tokyo like Koenji, which we describe then as is a kind of, uh, compa- in, a, in a kind of a comparison. And I think the last two cases, Ichigaya and Kiyosumi uh, Shilakawa, are uh, also showing that actually whatever place you choose, uh, you could find some, um, you know, social environmental factors, soft factors, which show the kind of creativity. And Ichigaya is really the edge of, um, as we know it, Yamanote Shitamachi areas, very central, near the uh, old palace of the emperor. And um, it is a kind of combination of traditional craftsmanship, artisan, and then new elements as rooftop gardens and urban gardening and creatives which start... Um, you know, shared uh, shared offices and just exchange the ideas. And Kiyosumi Shilakawa being really, um, you know, uh, I would say near Monze Nakacho, near Sumidagawa, uh, being these old areas where not so much, let's say, culture was flourishing, but it has still rich history. And nowadays, uh, this um, Kotoku uh, ward, Koto ward, has also realized that they have a lot of potential, potentially spaces, potentially, um, you know, inhabitants coming to that area. So they really have supported um, in their unique way, I have to say, um, the kind of, you know, settlement of young artists. And that's not just since the last five or 10 years, but 20 years ago. So old factories were used by galleries and so on. But even nowadays, it has such a unique scene of, let's say, 
um, artists and even the winery uh, where you say wine produced in Tokyo. Uh, so it's it's still flourishing. And that's the fascinating thing. You can't just say, oh, it is a, you know, a rundown area. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, I don't have a lot to 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 add to what Heidi because Heidi really explained in detail uh, our cases. Maybe I can say just this that that uh, that our cases were were quite interestingly uh, forged together because uh, not only we paid attention to the locality of a specific uh, case study that was used and explained within the book, but we also used uh, a lot of uh, focus to to identify the actors. So within uh, the interviews that were done uh, in specific neighborhoods, in specific parts of uh, Tokyo, we also paid uh, uh, the attention to various groups which were included in these uh, case studies. So we paid uh, attention not only to, uh, let's say, to people which work work in specific uh, parts of the creative sector, but we paid attention actually to this social creativity, which Heidi already explained. So we try to identify various types of creativity uh, and uh, try to identify to, to, to get uh, um, enough information from uh, various types of players within these neighborhoods uh, that share their and, and get their uh, view, their perception, their angle of of story uh, that they want to talk to us. And so we try to uh, integrate uh, all these perspectives and uh, uh, in, and uh, of course um, represent them in such way that you can possibly sense the distinctions between uh, specific actors that all together in a holistic way, combine the creative X system from bottom up not just from top down. So the primary intention was to go to these uh, smaller areas, to these local neighborhoods, and then climb our way up to the more uh, core areas and to more uh, core groups, which represent, uh, well, the top of the pyramid. Yeah. That is... Sorry, go ahead. Maybe to just give the reader a bit of snapshot, um, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, of course, not everybody has the book uh, in front of them. But if you go to page 180, you know, there is a very interesting aspect, for example, just a very short piece. Walking along a shopping guy, a shopping street, and turning left into a narrow alleyway, we come across a handmade leatherback manufacturer with a French name. We see no boxes or bicycles parked along the walls. And the space is kept clean so that customers can enter the shop easily. Inside the shop, the transition from Japan to the deepest part of Paris is obvious, as Alata-san learns his craft in Paris and returned to Tokyo in 2012. So just, you know, giving people that hybrid, hyper-modern, hyper-traditional perspective. I think it's just amazing how much one can notice with an observing eye and i think next time if i have a a chance to go to tokyo i would definitely try and look for these little things that demonstrate their creativity so out of all these neighborhoods that you discuss and you walk through in tokyo 
if you have to choose a favorite one, which one would it be, and and why? Oh, that's a. I mean, this is a. That's a very difficult question. It's the same with picking your favorite food or picking, you know. <laughs> but uh, as a as a Tokyo or not, I mean, not living in the central area anymore. Um, when I arrived, maybe just going back to the very first. You know, longer period of fieldwork. I was living in Yanaka, which was at that time fascinating, not just for me, but for many other people beforehand. Yanaka, Yanaka, Yanaka. Um, but moving, you know, on 15 years later, or how many years later, I would say it is, I think, the combination of tradition and modernity kind of coexisting in, I don't want to say peaceful, but in a not harming way. And I really, um, when living in then Kotoku and nearby Kyushima Shakara, I was, I think, maybe most fascinated if there is room for development. So it's not so much already, um, like we say, globalized or localized or you know commodified, but if there is still this kind of flexibility that people can come and realize something new and they don't have to fit in specific uh, rigid groups or structures. And I think... Wherever that is, whether that is in, you know, Kotoku or in Sumidaku or even outside Tokyo, I think a community should feel like that common, you know, that urban common, that commoning, then we share something together and don't just become an elite, like maybe Harajuku or Shimokirasawa or others. So these cute little neighborhoods which keep their identity, I think that's very important. So, well, in my case, I'm quite perplexed. I mean, I'm an, um, I'm, uh, let's say, I'm standing in two, we, with one foot, I would, I really like the central area, the central areas, the core areas, because, because I like the liveliness, the density. I, I, I got to admit, I adore it. I mean, because it's so, uh, it's so, the vibrancy is incredible. And on the other side, the other food is also in the in the local neighborhood. Uh, so, um, and I really liked all these cases that we uh, that we mentioned, uh, going from uh, um, Shirakawa to Hikifune, and I I like I, I mean I, I like all these cases. So, I, I can say that I'm really ambiguous, and it's difficult for me to answer this question because it's like asking which is my favorite movie. It's it's so difficult, it's impossible to answer it. And I guess I, I would say that uh, that my opinion changes with uh, my age. That the older uh, that I'm getting, more I like maybe the local uh, areas, and unless uh, I like the the core areas, but I'm still. Uh, a true, a true fan of, uh, of uh, let's say, also of the global imprint of Tokyo. That's um, thank you. That's, I mean, there, it's, it has to be a difficult choice only because all these areas are equally interesting in their own unique ways. Just as you pictured in your book, that it's impossible to to pick a favorite, right? Um, I think that's like uh, one of the one of the uh, attractive features of these places. 
Yes, and even moving on, that um, now we have completed that book, and we, that might have been not the last, that we say even other cities, including Sapporo, Hokkaido, um, Osaka, and Kansai, or whatever, have so many things to offer. So if we have a chance to live there or experience that or do some fieldwork there, that um, I think, um, yes, Tokyo being, I don't want to say overrepresented, and you know we also have done that book about Tokyo, but this is our first um, kind of, you know, um, you know, contribution to it. But if other scholars or even, you know, including us, have the chance to cover other areas, um, other local places, then I think it's fascinating to just continue addressing that questions and see how it's changing. That's that's awesome. Now, as we move towards the end of this conversation, I want to just um, ask one last question. In the clash between the changing economic environment brought by globalization and the efforts of local creative actors to preserve and revitalize everyday life, what kind of future do you picture for places in Tokyo as well as other parts of the world that share similar issues with Tokyo? And why do you think so? It is a... It is a let's say that in, in sociology we are I, I can say that uh, this question didn't go unnoticed and that it is present quite for a long uh, time and basically for example I will use the David Howe's words uh, about this because what he says he said that there are two options and one option is that um, that the place becomes engulfed with the sameness with the with same things that you got this uh, that same elements just engulf all the other elements around the world that you have the same high streets uh, that you uh, that you have an Omotesan or some other area I would say that that you have this high high uh, uh, classical uh, consumption areas and so on and uh, so one scenario is this and the other the second scenario which is also very possible is that because of this uh, presence of this uh, constant influx of the same elements, that the elements which make a space, or I I better use the word place, that make a place special, will become even more important. So that that the the, the sensitiveness for these differences in space will increase. So that 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 these uh, things which makes places different from each other will become even more noticed. So I, I guess both scenarios are going on on the same trait at once. And we're going to see uh, which way it will go. But I'm not so pessimistic because I can see that uh, some, I, I can see cases around the world when I travel for work and so on, that some places, some cities, some urban areas have be, have become really attentive of what they produce in space and how they produce a space. And they produce it not just physically, but also socially. So they have become really attentive about social production of space. On the other hand, of course, you have places, or better say that places became spaces because they became less attentive about what they put in space. And they just want to increase the economic potential of that area. So both scenarios are possible, but I can sense that uh, Tokyo has a good chance in this regard to, uh, uh, to, to 
make a step in the optimist in the direction of the optimist scenario. So I'm quite optimistic about the thing. Yeah, I think you know every city, of course, struggles with you know elderly or shrinking or you know other aspects. Of course, especially after the last year, which was you know having a huge impact on you know not just countries but especially cities. So I think um, yes, some areas you might say. Um, they become the same, they, you know, they look the same. And there's a danger of uh, just taking the example of Harajuku Station where they turn down or even pull down that historical building. So why not finding a combination? Um, we just have been in um, Yamanashi City over the weekend and, uh, you know, there they combined the historical building with a new building. So I guess you can't just generalize and say um, Japan is, um, you know, basically erasing the history and... Um, um, just focusing on modernity, as you might see it in other countries. I think it always depends on the perspective. It depends on the case. And if you have the knowledge, you have to share that experience with others to show that there is always a, you know, a choice you have. I mean, it's not like, um, you know, uh, you know, we just have one approach to urban planning and we have to globalize, 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 because as the title indicates, maturity eventually has to ask, uh, is asking about the quality of life. People will keep on doing their best or participating when we talk about place making or participating in, you know, actively into uh, urban planning or machizukuri as it's called in Japanese then you have to also ask, so what are you offering, not just promising, but offering people um, in in return and quality of life? Or let's say, why would it be worthwhile living in either Tokyo or local areas? I mean, at the moment, there's a trend of, you know, going to the local areas and just also exploring that things. But it will be always this kind of urban rural linkage or the transnational description where people move in between spaces. So it is always the influence from the outsider and the insider. So I think um, I'm not always, you know, sharing perspectives of, let's say, many economics or economic approaches where it's negative and saying, oh, we need to worry about such and such. So I think uh, whatever people need and uh, whatever politicians are doing there, and of course, nobody is perfect. So they also make mistakes and let's hope they learn from them. Thank you. That's I, I really appreciate the, the 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 broader implications of your study, how it extends to things that we should not forget as we try to grow more and more and more in economy and uh, not forget what where we came from and what we produce. I think a lot of the a lot of places, including my hometown actually, should um, really see the long-term impact of what they're doing to the city. And, well, thank you so much, Dr. Imai and Dr. Yosek, for such a wonderful conversation. And thank you, everybody. Yes, thank you, thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us in the New Books on Japanese Studies channel. If you want to learn more about urban creativity of Tokyo, of Japan, Check out this book, Creativity in Tokyo, Revitalizing a Mature City. Stay tuned for our next episode, and until then, goodbye.